Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. In the past month, we have gotten some details about the White House's potential budget. But what will this mean for the U.S.'s credit rating? I want to bring in Sarah Carlson. She's vice president and senior analyst for Moody's Investor Service in London. And Sarah, you know, we haven't gotten that many details and perhaps on purpose we've found out that uh, it will not be released in a more sort of a fully baked proposal until it is more fully baked uh, and and has already passed muster with some of the uh, members of Congress. But Sarah, so far... Do you see anything that could lead Moody's to downgrade the U.S. from its AAA rating currently? Well, so far, I mean, it's important to stress that the thing that's going to be really important for the U.S.'s sovereign rating at Moody's is really what the future path for entitlement spending looks like. The kind of detail that we've got so far really doesn't move the dial one way or another there, um, because whatever... um, you know, spending cuts, the, the balance between spending cuts and spending increases that we're seeing so far don't really create additional fiscal space for the kind of rise in, in entitlement spending that we're expecting to see over the next, say, five, 10 years. Sarah, the uh, the number 20 rattles around in my brain a lot because I think we're, are we at the $20 trillion mark in terms of federal debt? Uh, in terms of federal debt, no, no. we're not. Um so the I thought US that was the U.S. Is, the U.S. Treasury total public debt outstanding. Uh, it could be publicly held debt, so it's yeah. less than that. Because remember, the U.S. is about a trillion dollar economy, a twenty trillion dollar economy, and um, so that would make the debt to GDP ratio one hundred percent, which it's not. Right, because it actually is is heading in the wrong direction, right? So, Sarah, what are you going to be looking at when we do get more details about uh, President Trump's budget proposal uh, to determine whether or not it affects the creditworthiness of the United States? Sure. I mean, the big thing, as I said, that that will really matter is what happens with the future deficit trends and uh, what that means for future debt trends. The U.S. does have uh, the highest debt burden of all of the AAA-rated economies. Now, it has some other strengths that those other countries don't have, like the role that the dollar plays in the international financial system. But something, but as I say, that's really important to see what's happening with the debt trajectory. And given the role that entitlement spending plays in the overall federal budget, you know, mandatory outlays are just under two-thirds of total expenditure by the U.S., and entitlements are a huge component of that. That's going to be really Really important and will be absolutely key for the future rating trajectory. When I was taking a look at the Congressional Budget Office's uh, forecast for where the deficit would go in the U.S., one thing that caught my attention was the increasing provision set aside for interest payments. How have you modeled for the rise in benchmark yields in the U.S. and how that might play into the creditworthiness of the country? 
our expectations for interest expenses are very similar to those of the Congressional Budget Office. So in fiscal 2016, net interest expenses were around 6.4%. We're expecting that to go north of 11% in fiscal 2025. Okay, so based on that, what's the underlying assumption for Treasury yields? Uh, there isn't an under uh, we it changes from year to year. But like, doesn't there have uh, to, to be, be one frank. to have to have like a sense of how much it could go up? Because I mean, for example, if some of the more uh, dramatic projections for, say, 10 year yields to go up to 5 percent in the next two years, that would shoot up a lot more. No. Of course it would. Um, but it also depends, for example, on the maturity structure of the U.S. debt stock. So it's not quite so simple as just saying what is the 10-year Treasury yield. But our, the, the, the bottom line for us is that our expectation is, if you look across the various maturities for U.S. debt, that you'll see uh, net interest expenses as a percentage of total spending almost double uh, between now and 2025. And is there a number there that we can look at? I mean, I was thinking, for example, uh, in, on the Treasury Direct website, you can get this for each quarter. And we're talking about $188 billion. That's just for this fiscal year. Um, I mean, yeah, to, to give you a sense, again, of what's expected for this year, the CBO's baseline assumption is for 2017, $270 billion, rising almost to $300 billion next year and so on and so forth. By 2025, you're at uh, just over $650 billion. You know, Sarah, real quick, uh, in 2011, S&P downgraded the U.S. Has Moody's reconsidered whether they ought to do the same? The rating and the out the the stable outlook on the U.S.'s AAA, uh, you know, is is what it is. Um, but as I say, the thing that's really going to be important for us going forward is what happens with entitlement spending, um, because while there is a great deal of discussion about some other budget items, uh, those things, things like Medicare and Social Security, really dwarf all other expenditures that the U.S. makes, even dwarf military spending. Thanks very much. Sarah Carlson, Vice President, Senior Analyst at Moody's Investor Service, giving us a little bit of detail on the uh, federal debt and the interest payments that are going to eat up an even larger portion of the federal budget. Here to help us sort of decipher at least the uh, Keystone XL pipeline is Minal Vamburkar. I want to thank you very much for being here. And um, I know I messed up your name, but I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you, but you are the Minal ex- Vamburkar, right? Vamburkar. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Uh, who is really our best, great energy reporter uh, for Bloomberg. I've read your stuff all the time. Th- this approval by the, uh, by the president for the Keystone XL is, is this a done and dusted situation or are we just going to spend a lot of time paying lawyers now? <laughs> Lots of lawyers. Um, it's not done and dusted. It was expected that Trump would approve the pipeline. Um, you know, he already kind of helped Dakota Access uh, finish up their project. And we were expecting the federal approval, but it's far from over. Um, last time, the company encountered a lot of problems in Nebraska. And it's really the state and local level that there are going to be a lot of uh 
you know, protests and litigation going forward. So uh, this is Trans Canada that was granted the permit to work on the Keystone uh, Pipeline project, correct? Right. And so with this uh, particular project, what will the next step be for Trans Canada to move this closer to a reality? Right. So they've applied for uh, approval in Nebraska with the state's Public Service Commission, and that's kind of a lengthy process. There are already opponents who have filed applications to intervene um, and you, and, you know, it turns into this long process where the earliest they can actually get approval there is September. Um, there's lots of public hearings, uh, you know, a lot of stakeholders that have input, landowners, um, environmental groups. Well, can you give us a read on how uh, the people in Nebraska who would be voting on this currently feel? I mean, what's the sort of tea leaves? Right. Where were they pointing right now? <laughs> well, you know, last time around, there were uh, a lot of environmental groups that, you know, just as they have with other pipeline projects, chimed in about just opposing the use of fossil fuels and developing more infrastructure for fossil fuels. But the other side of it is the landowners. Um, you know, eminent domain is actually an issue where these opponents and Republicans agree, uh, a few uh, patches of common ground. And, you know, the land fight is just as much it kind of in the spotlight as the environmental stuff. Does the price of oil at $47 a barrel change the dynamics of this project <laughs> from when it was first conceived? Because as I understand right. it, the oil was supposed to come from, is supposed to come from Canada, from mm -hmm. the oil sands, and make its way down to the refining uh, infrastructure that the United States has in order to then ship it, sell it, and make money. Right. Is that something that has been affected by this drop in oil prices? Right. I mean, that's a question that a lot of people are asking. When the State Department back in 2014 issued their environmental review, oil was around $100 a barrel. It's about half that now, you know, hovering around 50. And people who oppose the project will say that, you know, the dynamics have changed. It's not economic anymore. Um, the company has, you know, said that, no, you still need this because Canadian production is growing. Um, but the Canadian government is also approving other pipeline expansions, too. So it seems like that bottleneck that we kind of have in Canada right now is easing. How does this fit into the network of pipelines that currently exist? Because we have the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was right. a separate project but is connected. And I believe that a lot of that uh, confrontation had to do with Native Americans who uh, were alleging that the pipeline itself could harm the groundwater and uh, some sacred areas uh, that are upstream from their water supply. Right. I mean, the, the main patch there that got halted was uh, the pipe that was going to run under Lake Oahe in North Dakota. And that, uh, I mean, it, it's still, there's a case still in court. I mean, the pipeline's basically close to being up and running. Um, and, you know, the courts haven't stopped that. So, Practically speaking, there's nothing really getting in their way. But um, that was, yeah, from the tribal perspective, that was a big thing, um, the issue of water. And that's definitely something that you'll see play out with opposition to Keystone, too. When you talk about eminent domain, how much land would have to be seized from private owners uh, to make way for this project? You know, that's actually a good question. Um, the the route in Nebraska changed uh, last time around when, you know, this thing went on for seven years. <laughs> um, and so we'll, we'll see kind of how that plays out uh, after the the process in uh, the PSC in Nebraska plays out. Um, after getting that approval is when uh, TransCanada would choose to invoke eminent domain. And that would launch, you know, a whole new round of litigation. <laughs>
The uh, effort on the part of uh, President Donald Trump in order to uh, unleash uh, the uh, industrial uh, prowess of the mm -hmm. United States. Uh, are there regulations in, uh, in place right now that you can say that the pipeline owners particularly would like to see uh, removed? I mean, is there a process that, that, is, mm -hmm. uh, un that is under threat as well? So, and this is something that we've uh, reported on a little bit already, but Basically, you know, on the federal level, for big projects like this, it makes a difference. You know, you need State Department approval for pipelines across the border. Um, you needed the Army Corps approval for the federal land for Dakota access. But when it comes to this big wave of pipeline opposition, so much of how these projects get stuck is at the state level, um, at the local level. And while Trump can greenlight these big projects, um, he can make all the promises that he wants to the oil and gas industry, he really can't change the state hurdles. That's not up to him. So there's no magic wand that he can wave and make everything better. <laughs> well, Mina, do you have a sense of how much economic benefit this project could lend to the U.S.? You know, <laughs> well, I mean, because that's 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 ultimately at the crux right. of President Trump's whole point. Right. Which is right. Uh, let's approve these projects which are going to make which will make America great again, bring back jobs, right. generate growth. So how much growth is being estimated from from this pipeline project? I mean, again, oh. the. You know what? I'm sorry. Hold that thought for another discussion. But right now, we turn to President Donald Trump's meeting with the National Economic Council at the White House. He's expected to address his earlier announcement regarding his approval for the Keystone XL pipeline, as we were just talking about. Let's listen in. I, okay, you know, it seems like we're not getting the audio signal right now, but we will throw to it as soon as we get it. Um, but just to, to continue on that point, I mean, he's talking about uh, the Keystone XL pipeline in line with the Economic Council. Let's see if we've got some sound now. Presidential permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. TransCanada will finally be allowed to complete this long overdue project with efficiency and with speed. We're working out the final details as we speak. It's going to be an incredible pipeline, greatest technology known to man or woman. And frankly, uh, we're very proud of it. Russ Gerling, president of TransCanada, is right behind me. And I'm going to have to say a few words. I know, uh, Russ, you've been waiting for a long, long time. And I hope you don't pay your consultants anything, because they had nothing to do with the approval. <laughs> In fact, you should ask for the hundreds of millions of dollars back that you paid them because they didn't do a damn thing except get you a no vote, right? It's a great day for American jobs and a historic moment for North America and energy independence. Uh, this announcement is part of a new era of American energy policy that will lower costs for American families and very significantly reduce our dependence on foreign oil and create thousands of jobs right here in America. And I also would like to add, I think it's a lot safer to have pipelines than to use other forms of transportation for your product. When completed, the Keystone XL pipeline will span 900 miles, wow, and have the capacity to deliver more than 800,000 barrels of oil per day to the Gulf Coast refinery. That's some big pipeline. The fact is that this $8 billion investment in American energy was delayed for so long, it demonstrates how our government has too often failed its citizens and companies over the past long period of time. 
Today, we begin to make things right and to do things right. Today, we take one more step in putting the jobs, wages, and economic security of American citizens first. Put America first. As the Keystone XL pipeline now moves forward, this is just the first of many energy and infrastructure projects that my administration will approve. And we've already approved a couple of other big ones, very, very big ones, which we'll be announcing soon, in order to help put Americans back to work, grow our economy, and rebuild our nation. And with that, I'd like to invite Russ to say a few words. Russ is a very highly respected man in the energy world. He's president of Trans Canada. And I know you're going to do a fantastic job, Russ, and get it up and hire plenty of American people. Thank you. Russ. Thank you, Mr. President. And uh, this is a very, very uh, uh, important day for us, for our company. Uh, so on behalf of you know, thousands of people that have worked very hard to get here, as you pointed out, a very long time to get here. But we're very relieved and, and very much just want to get to work. Some of those folks have with me today, uh, the building trades with, with, with Sean McGarvey, um, some of our, our, our construction contractors from Quanta, um, our pipe suppliers from, from Wellspun. Um, there's thousands of people that are just you know, ready and itching to, to get to work. We have a lot of work to do in the field, but as you pointed out, this is uh, the safest and most reliable way to move our products to market. Um, we're going to use the best technology. Um, it will create thousands of jobs. Um, and uh, 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 tax, important tax revenues in, in local communities. Uh, that's something often that's overlooked in, in projects like this, is local communities uh, benefit greatly from these projects. It gives them tax revenues in which they can you know, invest in schools, hospitals, roads, teachers, nurses, um, all of those things, build the fabric of communities and, uh, and make those places better for, for those folks to live. So again, thank you very much for this opportunity and uh, we're not gonna let you down, sir. Well, thank you, Russ, and I, I know the voters uh, appreciate this. Some of them uh, expressed it very, very strongly. The workers definitely appreciated it. The building trades heads didn't, but now maybe they're going to start to. Where are my building trades guys? I think they're going to start to because uh, other people were not going to be signing this bill. That I can tell you. And if it ever did get done, it would be years, but I, I don't think it would have ever gotten done. So we put a lot of people to work, a lot of great workers to work, and they did appreciate it. And they appreciated it, Russ, very much at the polls, as you probably noticed. And uh, so we're very happy about it. Uh, so the bottom line, Keystone finished. They're going to start construction when? Well, we got some work to do in Nebraska to get our permits there. So we're looking forward to working through I'll call the, Nebraska. the local. Uh, <laughs> you know why Nebraska is a great governor? They have a great governor. We've been working there for some time, and I, I do believe that uh, we'll get through that process. But uh, obviously, you have to engage with you know, local landowners, tribal try try communities. Uh, so we're reaching out to those over the, the, the coming months uh, to get the other necessary permits that we need, and then we look forward to start construction. Okay, I'm sure the rest will do good. Pete is a fantastic governor; he's done a great job, and I'll, I'll call him today. So thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to President Donald Trump. He was speaking about his signing of the order approving the construction and completion of the Keystone XL pipeline. In the room with him were Rick Perry. Uh, he is the Secretary of Energy, along with Wilbur Ross, the uh, Secretary of Commerce. And also speaking there was uh, Russ Gerling. He is the President and the Chief Executive of TransCanada, the uh, construction uh, company that will, uh, well, the oil pipeline company that will operate the Keystone XL. Here to uh, just bring us up to date, uh, we have Menal Vamberker, 
Did I get that even? I just have trouble. It's just me. Uh, did You heard the, what the president was saying. Right. And then at the very end, they talked about Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And that goes to what you were reporting, which is that, great, you get the federal permits, but it's right. the local level that is the big issue sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump says, you know, I'll call Nebraska. And they joked about that a little bit, but he can't do that. I mean, and I think, you know, you heard Gerling say, we've been doing a lot of work in Nebraska and, you know, we've spent a lot of years trying to figure this out. So I think, uh, you know, they're obviously, like he said, he's relieved and excited, but uh, I, I don't think they're deluding themselves. They know they have a lot of work to do still. Thank you so much. Minal Van Berker, energy reporter for Bloomberg, who has so kindly stayed here and reflected on what we have heard, as well as the whole situation and the arduous road ahead uh, to get this pipeline completed, regardless of any presidential sign off. You know, Pim, it's really interesting. We hear a lot about activist investors and sort of their influence over companies. Uh, but it turns out there actually is a predictable way to identify which companies are vulnerable to such activist intervention. I want to bring in Joel Levington, a senior credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Joel, we're so happy to have you. Uh, first, before we talk about how to identify companies that are targets or possible, likely probable targets for activists, why is it important to know whether a company would be uh, the target of an activist investor? Sure, Lisa, and thank you for having me. Uh, I think there's implications for both uh, stockholders as well as for bondholders. Uh, for stocks, it might be a catalyst for improvement if you can find uh, somebody that can lead the company to uh, either improve performance or maybe a more optimal balance sheet. For credit, uh, it, it, it could work the same way, except uh, it tends to be more negative <laughs> in that uh, activists tend to come in and want to add more leverage onto a situation, which is, uh, you know, would add credit risk. So in other words, coming from a credit perspective, you're sort of saying, look out, here are some companies that could potentially have surprising shifts in their valuations uh, that could upend some of your expectations, right? That's right. It's, okay. That's right. So which companies did you identify? Sure. Well, I didn't identify any of them. Luckily, we <laughs> luckily we put a model together that identified a lot of them. Uh, and what we did is we broke it out by different category, uh, uh, the sectors that they're in. And some of the names that screened high uh, were GE, which has been flagging in our model going back to two, 2014, the year before Tryon actually got involved, uh, as well as Ford and Kroger. They uh, stood out as kind of uh, bigger names uh, for their sectors. What is this measuring? Sure. Well, what, what what I did is I went back and looked at a lot of the research papers that Tryon has produced. And what Tryon, of course, is the vehicle by which Nelson Peltz, the activist investor, has invested previously in PepsiCo uh, and currently, I believe, has a position in Procter & Gamble. Yes. And, and GE and Pentair in the world of uh, industrials. And so uh, for, for them, they looked at uh, a variety of different factors like sales growth, margins, returns, uh, capital intensity of the business and stock performance. And so uh, using the Bloomberg Terminal, we put all these factors together and then started measuring peers to see like which stood out. And so out of that comes our flaggers of, uh, for companies uh, at risk for activism, uh, as well as for potential credit rating downgrades. When we did this uh, the first time uh, on June 16th last year, 
uh, the eight names that we listed wound up having 12 downgrades and no upgrades. So certainly a, a credit flagger uh, as well. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the composition of activist investors. When you first hear that word, you think of Carl Icahn or some of these other uh, sort of big figures. But how much of the activism has shifted to, say, mutual fund companies that own a lot of a, sh- uh, a lot of stocks of a specific company and can consolidate that to be a pretty big voice? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very good point, Lisa. And uh, not only mutual funds, but the 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 type of activists. Whereas a Carl Icahn might be more aggressive for financial risk changes, uh, there are others such as Starboard or um, uh, or here with Triand, where they uh, focus more on the operational side and how do we improve operations. So, which is not always a, a negative for credit if you can uh, you know improve the the quality of of earnings and sales growth. What would be the best use of this information? for a bond trade, a bond investor, and then just tell us also for an equity investor. How would they use it? Sure. I think for a bond investor, the key is, you know, here is a identifiable risk. Are you getting paid for it? Or that's how I would be looking at it, or at least that's how I was on the on the buy side. Uh, if you are an equity person, maybe that becomes a catalyst of change, and then you can start looking at the holders and where that might be coming from, like who would, where's the impetus for it. Um, and what would be the earnings opportunity if the company could achieve either sales growth or margins or whatever the item is akin to its peer set? And that would be the opportunity for, uh, you know, like earnings and per- perhaps stock uh, appreciation. You know, Joel, I'm interested in the response that you've gotten to this index that you've put together, because for so many years after the crisis, people just were piling into indexes and sort of riding this uh, beta wave or, uh, you know, just trying to get just something, you know, just basically riding the stimulus. But now it seems like there is so much more focus on picking specific bonds. Have you found that as well? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, the customer engagement has been uh, quite good. And in fact, it tends to be, uh, can we have more? Can we get historic data to uh, to test prove the, the system? Uh, that'll be coming out next week. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll talk again. Are there uh, any uh, areas that you would like to add to this information pile? Because it's not only what happens, it's the outcome that matters, right? I mean, it's not just whether the investor is correct, because in the real world, the outcome might be quite different. That's exactly right. And that's one of the great things about the tool uh, in, I guess, version 2.0, is that because it has historic data in it, we can go back and measure where activists actually hit uh, and what was the stock outcome? What was the bond outcome? Uh, for most, what we find is that the bond outcome was fairly negative, uh, and the stock outcome. Uh, we have a U.S. equity strategist that uh, is going to be writing on that in the in the near future. Were there any specific companies that stood out to you other than the ones you've mentioned? Because these are big companies, General Electric and and so on. I mean, you would have to amass a significant uh, stake either in bonds or in stock in order to really influence anything there. Are there any smaller companies that uh, popped up on your radar? Uh, what, there's a there's a there's a lot of companies even uh, like a, in the supermarket area. I guess the the things that that I thought were kind of interesting was that the system uh, certainly flagged on more stable companies uh, like heavily in the supermarket area uh, on the industrial side where you have a steady set of cash flow but maybe 
a margin issue or you're not growing sales as quick as your uh, peers where something could be done uh, both operationally and also could be done from a balance sheet perspective. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to another spot in credit markets that's been causing a lot of concern for people, and that is the auto sector. And I know we were talking about this yesterday, Joel. You know, we hear all about the auto loan uh, losses increasing, delinquencies increasing, uh, and and some of the the concerns and the, the poor results that we've seen as a result of that. How is this affecting Hertz and you know, Avis and some of these companies that really depend on resale values of cars in order to meet their bogeys. Sure. Well, I'm a John Mellencamp fan, uh, but this does not hurt so good for, for Hertz. Uh, they have uh, really taken it on the chin uh, since last November, where they uh, significantly lowered their earnings guidance because of residual value declines or uh, declines in the values of used cars when they go to sell them. And so uh, they've had to take write-offs on that. Ford was out yesterday uh, commenting that, uh, you know, that they're seeing declines in values. Uh, also this week, uh, Ali Financial came out with uh, commentary basically saying that, uh, that they're seeing significant weakness there, too, more than what they expected, uh, which has really crushed uh, Hertz bonds, Avis's bonds, and uh, to a lesser effect, uh, some of the OEMs that are, are auto manufacturers that have captive finance companies where that uh, derivative exposure is going to be as well. Last point to hear, when you mentioned Ally Financial, which of course is the old GM, which is the financing arm, uh, one of the comments that we got this week about their uh, their position was that the subprime borrower in automobile loans is who is in trouble. The uh, If you've got good credit, uh, you're paying your bills. It's the subprime area where we're seeing more delinquencies and defaults. Yeah, Pim, you're spot on. And uh, my uh, my colleague Ryan O'Connell has done some great work on this, where he shows, like, if you look at the last three quarters, uh, both for uh, Ali Financial and Capital One, their net charge-offs have been increasing uh, each quarter. So it's telling you that uh, there's a component of the uh, economy that isn't doing as well as, uh, you know, like what might be dictated by <laughs> by the stock market over the last uh, several months. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thanks very much, uh, Joel uh, Levington. He is an ex- Levington. He is a senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I always learn something new when we when we have you on because uh, you focus on something specific and then give us that broad reason for understanding it. Investing in airlines. Let's find out from Frank Holmes. He's the chief executive and the chief investment officer of U.S. Global Investors. They are based in San Antonio, Texas. Frank joins us in the studio here at our Bloomberg World Headquarters. Frank, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Um, uh, airlines. Uh, you know, Warren, we keep, whenever you hear airlines, I think Warren Buffett, yes, he said he would never invest in them. Now he will. Uh, tell us about the the whole airline industry as a in terms of investments, because I would wonder whether there is any, uh, you know, pressure because of potential travel bans and, and changes in the in the legal restrictions about what goes on in the airlines. I think that there's no doubt there that it impacted some of the global travel. But what's really happened, I think that's a change for why Buffett, and when we first talked about this in launching uh, the Jets ETF, uh, the question was, you know, he was a headwind. Uh, Buffett towards the airlines because he was anti. Now he's a tailwind, uh, and he ch- and went into the industry. I think for three reasons. One is a, it's a moat around the industry. It's very hard to build a new airport, 
or get new uh, slips to be able to fly back and forth. Uh, there's a shortage of pilots. Uh, the rules for becoming a pilot change dramatically. The CEOs, like the CEO of American Airlines, take stock in lieu of salary. So they're much more focused on returns on capital. Bottom line, they have the highest cash flow returns in capital in their history, and they're very disciplined for it. So I think that that's more significant of why he spent $10 billion buying the, the four big pillars of the airline industry. Frank, I'm looking at your Jets ETF, which invests in airline shares, and the expense ratio is 0.6%, which is actually uh, quite a bit higher than a lot of other ETFs and equity funds. What do you do to provide value and earn that 0.6% in this fund? It's a great question. Uh, it's a smart beta, and they call it a smart beta too, not only because of how we screen stocks that go into it, it is the overall structure that the four major airlines which represent 70% of all air travel in America are 45% uh, of, of the 48% of the fund, and they rebalance each quarter. Then we look at those companies that have the highest cash flow returns on investor capital, the what they call the revenue per seat mile, and we screen them. So there's about a 20% change each quarter of screening out stocks that don't qualify for this detailed uh, financial analysis. And we did about 4,000 hours of research doing back studies of looking during the, when they were through bankruptcy, uh, what were the best factors to deal with in a rising market, a falling market, price of oil rising, price of oil falling. And we came up with five factors. And I really thrilled about it because it's doing exactly what our performance showed it would do. Uh, and 80% are U.S. companies, 20% are foreign. But what's interesting is that uh, 70% of the names are foreign. So they're only capped at 1%. So they really don't, currency swings don't impair it. But it does capture if an airline is very strong out of Asia. Uh, and the other interesting part is that it can buy airports. And airports here are not owned by the public, but they're very big private equity. Beijing is, is public. Uh, Bangkok is public. Uh, and also in Mexico. Wait, wait, hold on one second. How does an ETF buy airports or a stake in airports that are, as you say, largely financed through private equity and debt? Well, they're like, they're it's more of a private equity model. So like the Toronto stock, the Toronto airport, the Pearson is a private owned by private equity. The interesting part is that you can buy airports outside of the U S that are public and they grow their cash flow at a 15% CAGR. Uh, so that means every five years it doubles. That's very much how private equity functions. So I think that they qualify and they will show up as soon as their cash flow and their revenue per share on a quarterly basis is lagging over four quarters. They're out. This is why you got what the, uh, Macquarie infrastructure fund is part of your holding. Yes, and they own, uh, and they have a couple of them, but the one we own in particular owns airports. Right. Um, I want to just focus on American Airlines because you brought that up for a second. I mean, this is a stock that was trading near fifty dollars a share in January, also in December. It's uh, down, you know, it's down almost twenty percent uh, from those highs. But this is a stock that's pretty volatile. Airlines are volatile investments, right? I mean, this was a twenty-five dollars stock back in last summer, so. Uh, you got to be aware of that, don't you? Absolutely, and uh, the the beta on on the airlines industry is is much greater than the overall market. And it reminds me of biotechnology, and it's also like gold stocks. Well, I was uh, going to say, do you balance this out with your gold position? Yeah. Because I know that you you were going to talk about gold, but I mean, if you want if you want volatility, go ahead, get an airline. 
But will the gold uh, at around $1,200 an ounce, would that in- mitigate any of the volatility? Mm, that has a different set of animals that drive the en- the gold space. So energy is what happens to oil prices. Oil was rising until a couple of weeks ago, and then it started petering out and falling below $50. So it psychologically has an impact on the valuations. Oil go- won't have a real significant impact on their cash flow unless it's over $60 a barrel for a period of time. Uh, I don't see that. I think it vacillates in between 40 and $60, the uh, price of oil. So these companies are throwing off lots of cash flow. Uh, American uh, is just one of those, those animals. And you're right, they are just more volatile. But the basket itself, when you own the ETF, lowers that volatility. And that's what's really important for investors, that you are capturing the trend in the industry and it's really important to follow middle class. The rise in the middle class is very important for travel. Uh, two million people a day fly in America. Uh, the biggest tourists in the in the world have been Americans because of the strong middle class of almost 100 million people. Now China is of equal of size in middle class. And so you're seeing the Chinese are all well, you just over had the report of American Airlines, what, wanting to take a, 20, a potential 20% stake in, in China Southern Airways. Correct. And that's all trying to cater to this cross the Pacific uh, uh, travel opportunity. And so I, I think that we have some you know unique opportunities here in this industry because they're much most important for us as investors. They're much more disciplined on driving high returns on invested capital. Which region in the world do you think is the best potential place for airlines right now? I would think Asia. Uh, you saw how fast last year Delta and United cut back a lot of uh, flights to Europe as the Europe, euro was falling yeah. and trade coming over here, Europeans slowing down. Um, but Asia, the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the dollar. Uh, it's much more stable. And they all want to come to America. Yeah. Well, they, they love America. And, right. Frank Holmes, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors based in San Antonio, Texas, which is a beautiful, beautiful city. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.